chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, specifically the passage of scripture that was read just a few moments ago. As we resume our study in chapter 11 and particularly at 29, as we've been going through this great chapter, there's one reoccurring question that we have faced. It's a personal question. It's a vital question. It's, a, it's not something that the person seated next to you can answer for you. It's a question that only you can answer, but it has in it a very realistic and relevant answer. The question is this, am I a man or a woman of faith? Am I a man or a woman of faith? Am I a man or a woman of faith as faith is unfolded here in these pages of scripture? For whatever else the book of Hebrews records for us, it describes that there is a battle between faith and unbelief. All the way through this letter, the letter has been reminding us and, and his readers of those who on account of their unbelief fall, if you will, if you will away from God's promises. I draw your attention to chapter 3 and verse 12, where the writer writes this when he says, See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. There's always that danger. There's always that fight that as we face earth's battles, we can get to that point of saying, what's the use? Should we continue to walk by faith. We mentioned last week that there's times when we, I, just want to drop the baton that we're supposed to pass on to the next generation and say, if you want it, there it is, you pick it up, I'm done. We've all faced those times. In fact, this particular chapter even begins with an interesting statement. For it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So the faith that we are to live by is not optional. It's not something that we add on to as, if you will, an option of whether electric or roll-down windows. No, it is to be our design. It would be something that we are striving to be. And so as we go through this chapter, we've been discovering, if you will, Faith in actions. And lived out, if you will, that understanding that faith is not something that is passive. It's not something that we take off and put in the corner once in a while and come back and grab onto it when it's need be. No. Faith is an everyday experience. It is something that we gain at the moment of salvation and it is to be exercised so that it does not become a lazy muscle, atrophy, if you will, and something that is unrealistic. Faith is to be worked out. That's why I guess the Apostle Paul wrote, whereby work out your faith. 
Work out your own salvation. Not work for it, work it out. Can I give you the Greek word? Gymnasium. We got one. Get there Monday night, work it out. If you like volleyball. Commercial time. So this morning, I want to begin and end this glorious study, focusing in on the last three portraits that are listed here for us. Moses, Joshua, then Rahab. But I hope you've at least garnered a little bit of information to realize that as the author writes concerning these individuals of faith, not much information is given, not a total grand spanking new, if you will, grandioso, fill up the valley. No, he focuses in on an issue, one particular thing. What's interesting, too, is we've seen individual portraits. Now the scene changes. For now, we're going to see a group of people. Did you catch that in verse 29, where it says, again, by faith they passed through the Red Sea. Now, it always interests me to realize that maybe some in the audience don't fully or have never taken the time to study the account of biblical instances. I'd like to see a show of hands. How many of you know everything there is to know about Moses and the Red Sea? Can I see your hands? Oh, come on now. now some of you know more than that. All right. How many of you know nothing of Moses and the Red Sea? Can I see your hands? Okay. So we're in good hands here. You know a little bit about it. And that's a good thing. But to really fully understand, or at least come to some kind of understanding, why the writer of Hebrews puts this in here, we've got to go back and, and look at what the Scriptures has to say concerning this particular event. You've got to go back to the book of Exodus. In fact, Exodus chapter 13 and chapter 14 give you the whole account, chapter 14, focusing in on more of the information. In fact, go back to Exodus chapter 14. I love to hear the rustling of pages of the scriptures. It tells me that for at least now you're awake. Exodus chapter 14. When you get to Exodus chapter 14, you'll discover the historical record of Moses leading the people of Israel out of Egypt and of God speaking to him concerning this particular hurdle that they find themselves confronting, namely the Red Sea. I challenge you to go back and, and peruse these verses for yourself. Because it's interesting that the chapter 14 begins by a, a wonderful statement. That God does this for a purpose. And the purpose is, is I want to see where the hearts of the people are. 
I've put them, or I'm going to put them, in this situation. Because I want to know where their hearts are. Now, if you stop and ponder that a little bit, you come to at least, at least hopefully like I did, I asked the question, why? Why, God? Have you found yourself in situations like that? Not necessarily looking at the Red Sea. I'm not distinguishing that. But I'm talking about trials of life. Do you find yourself asking, why, God? Well, have you ever stopped to think that maybe, just maybe, God wants to know what's in our hearts. But we'll not stop there. We'll continue on, if you will. And so when you read chapter 13 and chapter 14 of Exodus, you begin to discover that the people of God have left Egypt. They're on their way. They are trekking toward the promised land. The Egyptians are in pursuit. And the people of Israel find themselves being guided by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I'm just highlighting these chapters. You, you go back and read them for yourselves. And at one particular point in the proceedings, we're told in verse 22 of chapter 13 that this pillar of the Lord moves around in front of the people. He's leading them. He's leading them. Now, have you stopped to, to ponder? Is this the first time Moses has seen fire of God? No. You, you might remember in his earlier years, if you can call 40-some years earlier, maybe 60 or 70 by the time he's in this position, he's well in his 80s. You might remember the burning bush. And it was whether God was talking to him, giving him the instructions of what he's to do. And so this pillar of fire that is leading the children of Israel, you got to wonder, ponder at least a little bit that Moses is saying, this is God, we're going. Okay. And, and when you again get to the later chapter of 14 of Exodus, this pillar then moves. It moves from leading to the back of the group of the Israelites to protecting. It separates the Egyptian army from the nation of Israel, and it stays there. But what is interesting, if you go to chapter 14 and verse 20, you'll find out that the, this pillar on the Egyptian side is darkness. But on the Israeli side, it's light. It's still illuminating the way. What does that tell you about the world? To many in the world today, God is darkness. They can't see him. But for us who know him, he still lights the way. Oh, I hope you're with me this morning. we got much more to go. And as you read chapter 14, you discover that God gives Moses strict instructions. 
Notice, if you will, over in verse 13. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Correctly, if you will, put in Cecil B. DeMille's book or movie of Moses. But anyway. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. That's what God told Moses. And those of you that know a little bit about the story, none of you raised your hand to say, I know everything there is to know about it. But those of you that know a little bit realize that it is there that God commanded Moses to raise his staff over the Red Sea. And the Red Sea parted into, as it's described for us in chapter 14, two great walls of water. And then the children of Israel are to walk through it on dry ground. Now you've got the gist of what is happening here. They walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. Now as you go further along the canvas, it sort of has an interesting hue to it. It's like one of those pictures that you look at something and if you turn it just a little bit, all of a sudden another picture pounces out at you. This particular portrait in Hebrews 11 verse 29 has that kind. Because what it does now is it draws, if you will, our attention to the Egyptians. It's interesting that the Egyptians, though they've been kept in darkness all the time until the nation of Israel has passed through the Red Sea, they're not allowed to come. Once that is removed by the hand of God, all of a sudden they start to say, hey, if they can do it, we can too. Let's go. And they go rushing into the dry ground that soon becomes mud. I'll let you read further, but it talks about they became confused. Wheels are falling off of their chariots. The walls collapse back down on them. And the Egyptians that they saw they would see no more that day. Now that's the, the picture that we have here, but I want to at least draw your attention to a couple of things, if I may. Why is this here for us? Why did the author of the writer, if you will, of the book of Hebrews just include that phrase, and they, by faith they pass through the Red Sea? What, what do we have here? What does the text have for us this morning? Well, can I give you a couple of things? When you begin to read in chapter 14 of the book of Exodus, you will, you will notice that in verse 8, it says the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, are marching boldly out of Egypt. They're on their way. Uh, you can also, you can begin to imagine the shouts. We're going to the promised land. Let's go. It's going to be a way of ease. It's going to be wonderful. 
Let's go. Let's get going. Come on, Ma, pick it up. Let's go. We got to get out of town. They're marching boldly on the way. But then when you get to verse 10 of chapter 14, the tone changes. Can I read verse 10 for you? And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. They move from boldly marching now to complaining and disdain. What caused that? They removed their eyes from what was leading them, from who was leading them. Oh, Notice again what Moses says in verse 13. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. So where are we going with this? What is the issue here for our hearts, for our lives? Well, anybody looking at this situation most likely would say, I'm glad it wasn't Moses. I'm I'm, I'm glad that I'm not in Moses' shoes. How'd you get yourself in that position? You got the Egyptians, they're going to get you. You got the people who can't stand you. You got a big sea in front of you, and you got a stick. And you're standing up and saying, don't worry. It's going to be okay. God will take care of it. What are you going on? Moses, what are you basing this on? And Moses would emphatically say this. I'm basing it on the fact that God has said, these Egyptians you will see no longer this day. So here's our lesson. You see, you don't have to worry about how God is going to part the sea. You just have to worry whether you're prepared to stand with a stick stretched out over the water. Now, Pasha's completely lost his mind. What is he talking about? I'm talking about God doesn't ask us to figure out how he's doing it. He just asks us to believe. For every statement that the writer of Hebrews wrote concerning these portraits begins with the exact same two words. By faith. By faith. Faith is best described in this particular chapter 
at just believing what God says he will do. And he will do it. Just believing. By faith. Well, we move on to Jericho. For again, we see in verse 30 of the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. The next picture is equally dramatic. For in verse 30, it says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. Now to fully understand what the, the author of this chapter is describing for us, you need to, for your homework, go back to Joshua chapter 7. And, and as you begin to read that particular chapter, the, it, it begins to fill in what the author here has stated in a short few words that the walls of Jericho have had to come down. Wait a minute. Is that the only thing you've got to say about Joshua? Didn't he do so many greater things? The kingdoms that were subdued under his leadership after Moses. Even prior to that, the crossing of the Jordan River at its flood season. The same thing, walked across on dry ground. Differently was they were to pick up a stone in the middle of it and, and build, a, a, an, a, if you will, an altar on the other side of the river as a reminder of God's faithfulness to them. They finally entered into the, into the promised land and they're subduing it. And all the writer of Hebrews is focusing in on was an event that took seven days. And you know the story. Uh, I'm not going to have you raise your hands now because I got an idea none of you are going to raise your hands. Either you know the story or you don't, but let me tell you the story. Joshua stands on a sand dune looking at Jericho and he sees a mighty warrior standing off to his right and the warrior has his sword drawn ready to do battle and Joshua asks the warrior are you for us or are you against us and the warrior in so many words says wrong question the question is are you for me I believe it's the, the pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ standing there as the mighty warrior of heaven. Praise God. And it was there that Joshua fell down in worship because the warrior said the same thing that God said to Moses. This is holy ground. Take your sandals off. I'm about ready to give you information. And he tells him what he's to do. You and the people march around the city of Jericho. Don't say a word. Don't play a tune. Just walk around 
one day, one's time. Then you do it again, again, and again, and again, and again. On the seventh day, seven times. And on the last trip around, blow the trumpets and shout, and the walls are going to come down. Can you imagine Joshua going back and telling the people of Israel, this is our plan? (laughs) What is wrong with you, Joshua? You've been out in the heat too long. What would it have been if maybe Joshua called a committee meeting? We got a problem here. You see these walls? We got to work on how we're going to take them down. Well, you can begin to imagine what they might come up with. Well, first thing we're going to need is a battering ram. Because walls that big don't come down by themselves. There's a force that has to be applied outside so that they will fall. So we need a battering ram. And we certainly aren't going to walk around the walls not saying a thing. We're going to say nasty stuff to those people inside that scares them all to death. In fact, we're going to have to have speakers set up that have turned up the amp, and we're just going to shout as we go around. Well, that's what we would do, wouldn't it? But I trust that by this time in your walk of faith, you found out that God doesn't work that way. For he uses the weak things to tear down the strong. He uses the foolish things of this world to confuse the wise. He does it differently. And the reason he does it differently is because if we can do it on our own, then we think we're okay. We did it ourselves. And we neglect God. But that's not how it works. So why is this here for us? Oh, you guessed it. It begins with the same two words, doesn't it? By faith. By faith. Believing what God said he will do. And he did it. The next one recorded for us, you have to scratch your head and wonder why is she there? There's only two women who are listed in this particular hall of fame, faith. Sarah with Abraham, and now this one called Rahab. Now, if you didn't know anything about Rahab, all of a sudden you're introduced to a descriptiveness of what she was, not what she is. The writer of Hebrews describes her as a woman of ill repute. She's a harlot. She's a prostitute. And we know that because you go back to Joshua chapter 2, where you are first introduced to her. 
She was the one, you might remember, that has a house that's built on top of the wall of Jericho. It's a place that was frequent by men of the city of Jericho. She could not have her house down with anybody else in a neighborhood because of her occupation. She was dirty. She was unclean. No one wanted to associate herself themselves with her, but there are a few men that would do that at night. And you might remember as Joshua begins his leadership, he sends out two spies. And he wants them to do some investigation. And we find out that they go to this house of Rahab. Now ask yourself the question, what are good Jewish righteous boys doing in a house of ill repute? To us that makes no sense. Why would God allow that? Well, if you're a spy into a foreign land, you do not wear a hat saying, I'm a spy from Israel. You blend in. And so they went to a house, not to engage themselves in what other people were doing, but to engage themselves into the plan of God. What's interesting in that chapter 2 of Joshua, you find out that Rahab said some very interesting statements. She said, our city was scared to death years ago when we first heard that your God brought you through the Red Sea. The city was in lockdown. No one's going in, no one's going out. And so Rahab is here. And again, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, she's there for the purpose that we need to look at. But in this picture... It doesn't highlight the individual herself. If you can imagine a picture of a house on top of a wall, gable roof, windows, doors, but out one window, there's a thread, a scarlet thread. Now, you can debate that in theological uh, discussions, if you wish, of why that was there. It was there because the, the spies told her that when we come back, you hang a scarlet thread out your window and whoever is in your house will be saved. Here's this Rahab. It was kind of interesting that in Joshua chapter 2, as the men are checking out this enemy territory, the city, important people of the city come and interrogate her. 
But I don't, there's something I don't want you to miss, though. How in the world did Rahab get in this list? How is it? I mean, we, we go through this list. We got Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Noah, Enoch. Remember? It's not Enoch. It's Enoch. Make sure you speak Hebrew correctly. And now there's this prostitute. Writer, what are you doing? Well, if you turn to the book of Matthew, I'll give you that for homework, Matthew chapter 1, you find the genealogy of Jesus Christ that goes back to Abraham. And in that genealogy, you will come across this one named Rahab. Who later on, you come to understand that she's the mama of Boaz. And Boaz becomes the grandpa of David. Now before we get too often in our high horse, let's remind ourselves of this truth. Why is it here? Well... God does not look down on from heaven and say, hey, there's a pretty righteous guy. I want him on my team. Or look at a pretty righteous woman. I want her on my team. No, when God looks down from heaven and sees us, he sees wretched, mean, sinful scumbags. Oh, you don't like that word scumbag. I apologize. Let me rephrase it. Bag of dirt. You know why she's here? To remind all of us of God's grace. Huh. It's God's grace, dear people. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We have nothing in ourselves to be able to raise to the halls of heaven and say, See, I'm good enough. No, we're not. We are lost, wretched sinners, bags of dirt. And if it wasn't for the grace of God that he would take bags of dirt and fasten them into that which comprises, if you will, the very temple of God, then none of us would be here today. Oh, as the writer continues on in this particular chapter, and time is already fleeting past us, we realize that he begins to mention this long list that he has no time to talk about. You can read it for yourselves in Hebrews 11, 32 to 40. He says, I got this big long list and I don't have time for, you to, for to tell you about them. 
And dear people, I don't have time this morning to tell about them. And once the amens have ceased, let's continue a little bit. We go on and realize that in these descriptions, if you will, pen for us, don't much describe, if you will, the days of Grace Community Church, but let me remind you of the myriad of saints who lost their lives so that we can come here to worship our great God. But I'd like to focus on one statement, if I may, in verse 39, where it says, and the world was not worthy of them. The world wasn't worthy of them. Those who were sawn in two, those who were killed by the sword, those who wandered in sheep's clothes and goatskins, hid in caves and caverns, were fed by birds because that's all they had. The writer of Hebrews says, and the world wasn't worthy to have them. May I close with this, please? They weren't getting their names in who's who's, if you will, of the world, but they had their names written in who's who's in eternity. They were commended for their faith, but they didn't see all that was completed. And the reason being because they were waiting for a completion that was yet to come. They lived in faith and they died in faith. They, and that's what we do. We live in faith and we die in faith. We take God at his word. He says that he will forgive us. We take him at his word. He says that he will take us to heaven. We take him at his word. And one day soon, maybe very soon, we'll be reunited, if you will, excuse me, with these saints who have gone on before us. And Paul says, I has not seen Ear has not heard, neither has entered in the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. My question for you this morning, dear people, is this. Do you love him? That's what it all boils down to. Do you love the Savior? I trust you do. We finish chapter 11. And all of heaven would say amen. <laughs> now we move to chapter 12, but I must at least leave you with this thought. You investigate it yourself. After all that the writer of Hebrews has taken us through of these portraits, of these hall of fame of faith, yet in chapter 12 he begins with the one for whom we must always keep our eyes focused. He said, therefore, seeing that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, keeping our eyes focused on who? Jesus. That's coming, Lord willing, next week. May we pray. Again, our Father, our hearts 
swell up with thanksgiving. These portraits that you've had allowed us to see are a good reminder that we need to live by faith. Taking you at your word and willing to stand forth even if all of we forsake all of the world. We do that by faith. We may lose friends, we may lose acquaintances, we may lose even our jobs. But we realize that one walks by faith, it's worth the journey. Because we too understand that eye has not seen nor ear has even begun to hear what God will do for those that love him. Oh, may that be our song this day, to love you and walk by faith. In Christ's name we pray as we close. Amen.